0: Oh, good day, everyone. My name is Ben, one of the staff workers here at CU. Um, I'm going to kick off things looking forward, look at that passage with a question. Um, The question is Should you read the Bible literally? Discuss with the person next to you for a minute or so. Should we read the Bible literally? What do you think? (laughs) Depends on the context. Stop being so thoughtful and nuanced and wise. (laughs) (laughs) Alright, it's great to hear you guys wrestling with that and engaging with it. Um, I don't know if you guys found that an easy question to answer with an easy yes or no, um, but it is actually a little bit of a tricky question. It may or may not be the first time you've heard that question, because it does get asked occasionally. um, And often, whether or not someone reads the Bible literally is treated as a kind of litmus test, Of whether they think the Bible is true. Because often when someone says you shouldn't read the Bible literally, what they often mean is uh, the Bible isn't actually true. It's like, it's fables. It's like the tortoise and the hare or Goldilocks and the three bears. It's not describing events that actually happened in history. Um, It's just there to give you a moral lesson. Now, that's a deeply problematic way to read the Bible for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, and it, as even secular historians would tell you, the Bible is recording historical events that actually happened. It's just something completely different to Aesop's fables, or those kind of things. So when someone says you shouldn't read the Bible literally, that's often um, a red flag. But because of that, a lot of Christians have swung the pendulum the other way and have really wanted to emphasise you need to read the Bible literally. And there's a good instinct there, because we want to take the Bible seriously. There's a good instinct to say you've got to read it literally. But there's also a slight problem there. Because some parts of the Bible aren't meant to be read literally. Some parts of the Bible are, in fact, metaphorical. Psalm 18, verse 2, David says, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. Should you read that literally? I'm guessing instinctively, you read it metaphorically. I don't imagine for many of you, you pictured, wait, God's a rock? Like, uh, how is this possible? Instinctively, you probably saw, God is not a literal rock, but it, it's metaphorical language to point to a true reality about God, that he's dependable, he's a source of strength. Or in John 6:35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Should you read that literally, No, Jesus isn't literally bread. Good news for the gluten intolerant among you. (laughs) Uh, But the metaphor points to a true reality about Jesus. He's the source of life. So the question really shouldn't be, uh, do you read the Bible literally? But rather, uh, do you take the Bible seriously? Do you think it's true? It's actually a more helpful question that gets to the heart of things. Uh, But of course, uh, the reality is in life, you don't always get to choose the questions that you're asked. Um, And so when someone does ask me that question, uh, do you read the Bible literally, I'll usually respond by saying something like this, Uh, I believe the Bible is true, so I read it literally when it's communicating literally, and I read it metaphorically when it's communicating metaphorically. Taking the Bible seriously means reading it on its own terms. When it's communicating literally, read it that way. When it's communicating metaphorically, read it that way. Now, that raises an obvious question. Uh, how do you know when it's communicating one way or the other? And the short answer is most of the time, it's actually pretty obvious. I'm guessing none of you thought that God is literally a rock, just instinctively. Most of the time, it's pretty obvious, but it's true. Most times, it's obvious, but a bunch of times, it's not obvious. And so we need to work hard reading the Bible and trying to understand it on its own terms. Now, part of doing that is looking at something known as genre. Now, for the engineers among us, uh, genre simply (laughs) refers to uh, the type of literature that you're reading. (laughs) It just means the type of literature that you're reading. Um, And the New Testament, if you look at the 27 books of the New Testament that we've got, you've got a few different genres. Uh, The Gospel and uh, and acts are what's known as historical narrative. They record historical events. And so apart from the odd proverbial saying or metaphor or perhaps a parable which are usually pretty obvious when they come your instinct should be to read it literally. Read it literally unless you've got a strong indication to do so otherwise. Jesus rising from the dead isn't a metaphor. It literally physically happened. There are witnesses, a literal empty tomb, you get the idea. So that's the Gospel and Acts. Uh, the letters uh, are similar. They're not historical narrative. They're, they're a different genre that's known as you know epistles or letter. They're not historical narratives, but they are letters written in history from one person to others. And so again, your instinct should be: read literally unless you've got reason to think otherwise. The author might be using a metaphor, that kind of thing. absolutely happens. Now, Revelation, standing on its own in the New Testament, it is a literature... It is a letter as well, but it's also a special kind of letter, what's known as um, apocalyptic literature. Now, that's a particular kind of genre that's characterised by heavy uses of imagery and symbols, as you got a little taste of just in our reading just then. Which means that Revelation... Kind of the opposite from historical narrative. You should generally read things metaphorically unless there's a good reason to read it literally. Your base assumption should be this is a vision, it's signs, it's symbols, it's metaphors, it's pictures. Pointing to real things, but in a metaphorical way. Now that's really important to understand because here at CU we take the Bible seriously. But part of taking seriously means that we don't read Revelation literally. Instead, we allow it to communicate to us the way it wants to communicate. Which means that, as we saw uh, last week, whenever we see a a sign or a symbol or a picture in this vision that John has been shown in Revelation, we don't jump straight to literal world events far from John's original uh, readers that would have made no sense to them and start making end-time predictions and predicting the end of the world that's actually failing to take the Bible seriously. Instead, we allow Revelation to point us back to the Old Testament, which is the source of so many of these images to help us understand uh, what realities they're pointing to. And when we do that, we find that Revelation has profound truths that have big implications, both for the original recipients 2,000 years ago, but also for us today. So let's dig in. Revelation 17 to 18, and see what it has to say. If you've got a Bible or handout in front of you, uh, have a look with me at Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 to 2. One of the uh, seven angels who had the seven bowls um, came and said to me, Come, I'll show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. So in Revelation, uh, the book as a whole, John is recording what he's being shown in a vision. But here, notice that the angel is giving an advance warning on what he's about to be shown. He hasn't actually been shown anything yet, he's just been told what he's about to be shown. It's almost like he's being mentally prepared for it. Because what he's about to be shown is pretty bizarre. Have a look in your Bibles with me at verses 3-6, to where John tells us what he actually sees. Verse 3, then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and there I saw, here's the vision, the picture, the image, I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with the abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon, the great. The mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people. The blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. Okay, so what is John seeing? It's a pretty striking image. It's this great prostitute and there's a lot going on. She's decked out in bling. She's drunk. Uh, She's riding not like a horse or something, but like this dragon with like seven Seven heads. heads And it's pretty, if you like, um, if you like Google image it, it's it's pretty like crazy, the kind of different artist (laughs) renditions that people um, come up with for this kind of thing. But it is meant to be a striking image. And she's drunk with what? With the blood of God's God's holy people. Yeah. And there's a name written on her forehead. Now, because it's confusing, right? Who on earth is this? But this has got to be a clue. There's a name written on her forehead, Babylon the Great. And we've got to ask, what on earth is going on here? Uh, What's the meaning of the vision? If you don't get the identity of this woman, the so-called Babylon, then none of the rest of Revelation 17 to 18 make any sense. So we've got to ask, who is the woman on the beast? Is this predicting some actual person who's going to come in the future, who's going to do all these crazy things? No. Remember, it's not talking about a literal prostitute. And it's not talking about the literal city of Babylon. We've got to go first to the Old Testament. And Babylon has a lot of significant background in the Old Testament. Uh, Because in the Old Testament, Babylon was a powerful empire. And the Babylonians, under King Nebuchadnezzar, defeated Israel. And in 586 BC, they destroyed Jerusalem. That's the corner of the Temple Mount. Uh, they, they burn it down. They threw down its, uh, its bricks. And God's people were taken into exile by the Babylonians and were oppressed and persecuted by them. So Babylon in the, 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 great, in the Old Testament is this, this great enemy, an evil, oppressive empire that mistreats God's people. But the thing is, Babylon didn't actually last very long after defeating God's people. They were overthrown by the Persian Empire just 50 odd years later in 539 BC. So this great powerful empire that was oppressing God's people got overthrown suddenly. And the Persian Empire actually allowed God's people to return to Israel and rebuild Jerusalem. It was an improvement in that situation. But so there's resonances, powerful empire that is oppressing God's people, but is going to be overthrown quickly, that's getting drawn on in this vision. Now, what happened next? Well, in 63 BC, so quite a few hundred years later, uh, Israel was invaded by a new powerful empire called Rome. A new Babylon, if you will, a new powerful empire, but this one was even more powerful. And just like the actual Babylon, Rome also destroyed Jerusalem. In 70 AD, Rome destroyed Jerusalem, uh, and they were persecuting Christians as well, persecuting God's people. Under Nero in the 60s AD and the 90s AD under Roman Emperor Domitian, which is when Revelation was written. So who is this great prostitute, this woman of on the, on the beast, who's figuratively called Babylon? It's talking about Rome. Not modern Rome, mind you, uh, but ancient Rome, which was oppressing God's people. And there are some other indications in the passage that point us in this direction. Have a look in your Bibles with me at Revelation 17, verse 6. It says, I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. For the original recipients of this letter, there's no doubt who that would immediately call to mind. It was the Romans who were persecuting them. Another pointer, have a look at chapter 17, verse 9. So the woman is sitting on a beast with seven heads, which is is really weird. But again, it's not literal. What do the seven heads represent? Well, we're actually told in this one. Verse 9. This calls for a mind with wisdom. You've got to interpret what's being shown to you. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. Now, it's important to know that Rome quite famously was known for being established on seven hills. It's one of the things that Rome was very well known for. But once again, it's another strong clue that this woman is figuratively representing Rome. And one final clue, which I think kind of seals the deal, really. Check out chapter 17, verse 18. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. That There's just no question who the original recipients of this letter would think of. That is the great city of Rome. Whose empire stretched over many nations and kings in the days when Revelation was written. So that's a way of interpreting what we've just seen in Revelation 17 in light of the Old Testament. Uh, But it's worth being aware that some people interpret all this stuff about Babylon literally. Uh, They point out that the the ruins of Babylon um, are still there uh, in modern day Iraq, which is absolutely true. Um, but they say that the Bible promises that this, this exact city and this exact place is going to be rebuilt and become this powerful empire that's going to rule over the nations. Check out what this Bible teacher says. Um, scary looking book. So this is a screenshot from his website. The city of Babylon is currently in ruins. Yet we know it will rise to power once again because of biblical prophecy. The 18th chapter of Revelation says Babylon will once again rule the economic world, this time as a hub for the antichrists, one world economy. Globalisation scary. In the end times, it will rise and fall again. How will this transformation occur? In the world today, there are already indications emerging of things to come. Then he goes into modern geopolitics, and Saddam Hussein trying to rebuild the city in the 1980s, which he actually did try to do before he was overthrown. Um, and all this obscure stuff, which I want to say to him, no, if you're reading Revelation literally like that, you're not actually taking it seriously. Why on earth did John's original readers, who are suffering persecution under the hands of the Romans, why did they need to know that, hey, by the way, in 2,000 years, it's going to be this guy named Saddam Hussein, and he's going to do this thing where he rebels. It's just completely irrelevant to them. Reading Revelation like that sounds like it's taking it seriously, but it's not. It's not allowing Revelation to communicate on its own terms. So I just want to briefly flag that to kind of train you guys a little bit and help you be aware of what's out there and some unhelpful Bible teaching that wants us to focus on politics and, and all this current world events and be worried and try predict dates. So uh, that's the identity of Babylon. Babylon. Um, The identity of Babylon is Rome, the ancient empire of Rome. So now let's turn to, not the identity of Babylon, but the fall of Babylon. The fall of Rome, which is pictured as this woman on the beast. Have a look in your Bibles with me. Revelation 17, verses 15 to 18. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages, all under this one great empire. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into the hearts their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. So Rome, the great prostitute, is, is ruling over many uh, peoples and nations, but here we see that those kings and nations turn against her. They bring her to ruin and and devour her. It's pretty confronting imagery. And when you see this imagery, depending on uh, how much of history you're aware of, uh, it's hard not to think of the sack of Rome. It's hard not to think of how the city was stripped and burned and devoured by peoples uh, around them. And the Rome uh, and Rome came crashing down so suddenly and unexpectedly. In the ancient world, both Rome's allies and even her enemies were shocked at the, the way the city fell so suddenly and unexpectedly. Now, to be fully upfront here, people debate over exactly what's being referenced here and how closely we want to tie specific aspects of John's vision to the specific events of Rome's downfall. There's a lot of debate that can go back and forth, even within the big... Uh, framework, but regardless of the particular details, one thing is absolutely clear. Rome, the mighty and seemingly indestructible uh, world power that ruled over the nations and oppressed God's people, Rome did not last. It fell. You know, Rome is literally known as the eternal city. The city and empire that that Uh, That ruled and stood for centuries. It, It lasted for such a long time. So many people thought it would never fall. And yet what is Revelation 17 to 18 saying? No, it's promising God's people it will fall. And it pictures that fall in vivid imagery. Have a look in your Bibles with me at Revelation 18, verses 1 to 3. It says, after this I saw another angel coming down from heaven... He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendour. With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great! She has become a dwelling for demons, and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries." Fallen is Babylon the Great. Fallen is Rome with all its power and might. Now, there are many aspects of Rome's power and influence that you could talk about. Military, political, religious. But the overwhelming emphasis of Revelation 18 is on the economic influence of Rome. Of money, of wealth, and of the alluring and intoxicating effect that it has on people. You can see that there in verse uh, 3, it says all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. Now, I don't think this is referring here to literal adultery, that is being unfaithful to your spouse, having sex outside of marriage. Because frequently in the Old Testament, adultery is used as a metaphor of unfaithfulness to God, of cheating on him, as it were, by giving our hearts to other gods or to the idol of money. And in the context of Revelation 18, that seems to be the kind of adultery that's in view. The intoxicating and alluring effect of wealth. You can see that there in the second half of verse 3. Uh, it's this kind of parallelism where committed adultery with her is paralleled with the merchant of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. This becomes even more clear as you read on. Have a look in your Bibles with me. If you've got a handout, you're not going to be able to see it there. But if you've got a Bible or a phone, you can see beyond uh, what's just included in the handout. Revelation chapter 18, verses 9 to 17. Look at how prominent the influence of luxury and wealth are as the nations mourn the fall of Rome. Verse 9. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury, see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon! In one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, the articles of every kind of ivory, Costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, human beings sold as slaves. They will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendour have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her Will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. You see, all these nations were hooked on the intoxicating wine. Of Rome's wealth. They were drinking the Kool-Aid. Which meant that when Rome fell. They were utterly devastated. Everything that they had put their hope in. Money and wealth. The life of comfort and luxury that they could have. By siding themselves with Rome. This great world power. Turned out to be empty and temporary. And utterly left them empty. So that's the vision that John sees, and shares in Revelation 17 to 18. But it's worth asking, why did John's original readers need to hear this? Because again, Revelation was written to a number of churches living in seven cities in the Roman province of Asia. We know that from Revelation chapter 1. And so before we jump from the island of Patmos to these guys out here, And before we jump to what Revelation means to us today, we've got to ground it in what it would have meant for them. And if you remember from last week, the Christians were facing persecution at the hands of the Romans under Emperor Domitian. And the temptation for those Christians to compromise on their faith in Jesus was very strong. Stand firm with Jesus. You're going to continue to face suffering and difficulty. But drink a little bit of the intoxicating wine of Rome. Just compromise a little. Just offer a little bit of incense to the Roman Emperor cult. A lot of uh, Christians throughout the period of Roman history would be just asked to sacrifice this one little uh, sacrifice to the Roman Emperor, just once a year. If you do that, you can prosper, be wealthy, be successful. Just compromise a little bit, and life will get a lot more comfortable. And you know, it's hard to imagine what it actually would have been like facing what they faced. But the allure of Rome's wealth and comfort would have been strong. And so Revelation 7 to 18, 17 to 18 is a vivid picture. Reminding these Christians that Rome, despite all her allure, is going to fall. And all who trusted in her wealth will be ruined. So it's a call to hold on to Jesus... And not to compromise with the powers that be. You can see this really clearly in chapter 18, verses 4 to 5. This one you do have in your handouts. In verses 1 to 3, it describes how uh, Babylon, uh, this prostitute, has fallen. And then in verses 4 to 5, John says, Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues the judgments that God is pouring out on her. For her sins are piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. It's saying don't compromise with Rome. Don't be allured by her wealth because if you share in her sins, you will share in her plagues and the judgments that God will bring on her. If you get in bed with Rome, you'll share the same fate that she does and you'll be destroyed along with her. So when it says come out, this isn't saying to literally come out of secular society. Uh, It's not a call to live secluded lives in the hills where we grind our own wheat and churn our own butter and just wait it out until Jesus comes back. No, these Christians weren't even living in literal Rome. They were just living under her power. It's a call instead to use the language of Jesus in John 17 to be in the world, but not of it. John 17, Jesus says, My prayer, God, is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it, Jesus said. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. So Jesus says, I don't want Christians to come away from secular society. I'm actually sending them into it. But to be distinct, sanctified, set apart by God's word word, to live differently, to to live by not the the values and and priorities of our culture, but the values and priorities of Jesus. Not drinking the Kool-Aid and going along with the crowd, not drinking the intoxicating wine of wealth and comfort that our society today, just as theirs back then, prizes so highly, but to live distinctly as followers of Jesus. And there are all kinds of areas of life where there will be a clash between the values of Jesus and the values of our culture. But from Revelation 18, the warning in particular is to be distinct when it comes to wealth and comfort. So it's worth asking for us, for us today, where do you think we are most in danger of compromising? Where do you think you are most at risk with being tempted to compromise, maybe just a little bit at first? Slowly, more and more, with the secular culture around us. Because we're lured by the pull of wealth and comfort that our culture offers us. You see, it could be a, a big one-off decision. I've got a family member who works for a big company over east, and one of the challenges that he has to navigate is you know, his company's policies on sexuality. Now you might ask why a big fast food company, which is what he works for, would even have an opinion, never mind a policy, on people's sexuality. But that's the world that we now live in. All the corporations are starting to do this. And the chief diversity officer wants to tell people that they must affirm and celebrate lifestyles that in good conscience as a follower of Jesus, he cannot celebrate. So what should he do? Stay quiet? Go along with the crowd? Just wear the purple shirt and get on with it? Talking to a friend of mine last week and she was saying the pressure that she felt in her workplace to be a part of the celebrated All Wear Purple, she found that so hard. Or, respectfully choose to be different as a follower of Jesus. Well, I know for my brother, he feels this tension. Depending on what he chooses, that could have a real impact on his prospects for a promotion. So it could be big decisions like that. But you know, for many of us, what's just as dangerous if not more so, is the hundreds of small decisions we're faced with. The intoxicating wine of our secular culture is strong and alluring. It numbs us and lowers our defenses, so that wealth and comfort start to be to look pretty good. Maybe I don't have to choose between the two. Maybe I can have both. And little by little, not with a bang but with a whimper, we slowly start to prioritize money and career and wealth. Over honoring God. I was chatting to Eben just earlier this week, sharing about a mate of his in footy, you know, Christian guy, but really wants to advance uh, and, and do really well in footy. And so, oh, I'll still be a Christian, but oh, sometimes I just have to start missing games on Sundays, but oh, it'll just be a one off, but then it's not a one off. And it wasn't a one off decision, it was the slow drip. And slowly and slowly, surely, it pulled him away from Jesus. That's probably going to be the greater danger in our culture today, isn't it? But whether it's the big decision or the many little ones, Revelation 17 to 18 is opening our eyes to expose the lies of wealth and power, whether that be in Rome back then or our secular culture today. And you know, here's why the Romans who were persecuting these Christians got things so wrong. They thought Christians were weak and powerless and insignificant. And by worldly standards, they were right. But because those Christians followed the Lamb, Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead and will one day return to judge, it actually turns out that it was the Romans who were on the wrong side of history. I mean, have you ever met a Roman? Have you ever met a Roman centurion walking around campus? I mean, maybe for like a party on Friday night or something. No, the Roman Empire is long gone, isn't it? With all their impressive wealth and cultural influence, they're relics of the past. God's word has what, exactly what it said has happened. Rome the Great has fallen. So, you haven't met a Roman, but have you ever met a Christian? Yeah, this room's full of them. There are hundreds on our campus and hundreds of millions around the world. Empires, nations, and cultures, they come and go. But Jesus stays eternal. God is our rock and our refuge. He's not going anywhere. The people in our day who hold the powers of cultural influence or in our organisation who mock Christians for being on the wrong side of history, they want you to get on board with them and the pressure feels strong now. But if you can open it up to see a God's eye view, see the bigger picture, the most influential people in our society today are going to be a footnote in a thousand years if they're lucky but there's one name that will continue to be known throughout all history and it's the name of jesus on the final day when he comes to judge the living and the dead his will be the only name that matters so brothers and sisters don't fall for the lies of our culture don't fall for their empty promises of wealth and comfort which will leave you empty Build your life around Jesus, the Lamb who was slain for our sins. Who will come again in victory. Revelation 17 verse 14 says, They will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will triumph over them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And with Him will be His called, chosen, and faithful followers.